Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that you and your family are doing well today. I want to thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. About a month or so, I interviewed Mike Gendron, and we talked about Roman Catholicism. And uh, I told folks that Mike, in a, in a sense, Mike is to Roman Catholicism in a way, kind of what I am to Word of Faith. God saved Mike out of the Roman Catholic Church, that deception. And now Mike is an evangelist, and he is committed to preaching the gospel, and uh, especially has a heart for Catholics, and he wants to see God save other Catholics out of that deception, as he did for himself, for Mike. And um, so it was a joy. Now, in looking at some of the comments that were left on that video that we did, uh, there were a number of them, and as you might expect, there were some Roman Catholics that uh, found their way to the video, and they had some objections. They had some questions. They they pushed back, and so uh, contacted Mike. I said, Mike, I thought I think it would be a great idea for us to take some of those comments that we're seeing, and we'll read them or at least summarize some of them. And uh, Mike, I'll ask you to answer those objections. And so uh, Mike is joining me now. Mike, thank you very much, brother, for coming back onto the program. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Likewise, I read a lot of the comments and it really breaks my heart to see Roman Catholics who are really denying the authority of God's word. And that's really what it comes down to, Justin. In fact, when we're contrasting Roman Catholic teaching with biblical teachings, we really need to look to the authority. And as we know, Roman Catholics have three different authorities, which is part of the problem. They not only have their sacred scripture, but they also have their sacred tradition and also the infallible teachings of their bishops and their popes. So when you look at how the Roman Catholic Church got off course and doesn't follow apostolic faith, you have to look to different authorities that they're following. Yes, indeed. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, I look forward to this next hour or so. We're going to flesh out some of those very concepts and ideas. And I, um, some of the comments I'll read directly. Uh, others were kind of lengthy, so I'll kind of I'll summarize them. But Mike, the first one is, and this is one I've heard a lot, I know you have as well, one of the common Roman Catholic objections to Protestantism in a general sense, they'll say the very fact that there are all of these hundreds of different denominations within the large umbrella of Protestantism. I mean, you know, you've got Methodists, you've got Presbyterians, Baptists, and all kinds of different shades of those, and, you know, on and on and on, and there are a lot of them. They say the very fact that there are so many Protestant denominations is inherent proof that there is really only one true church, the Roman Catholic Church, that should be teaching people scripture. So the very fact that Protestantism is so fractured and has so many different camps proves that the Roman Catholic Church is the only church. So what say you? Well, there's two answers to that. Number one, the Roman Catholic Church is not united in a common teaching. There are Roman Catholic priests and bishops and even popes that uh, stand opposed to one another. I think this pope more than ever has denied historic Roman Catholicism, yeah. such that many of the cardinals and bishops in the church are actually against him, and they're actually looking for ways to do away with the pope so that we they can get another pope in place that actually follows historic Roman Catholicism. So there is no unity in doctrine and teaching in the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, they do have an official teaching, which is based on the catechism of the Catholic Church, but this pope, Pope Francis, goes against many of those historic teachings. So that's part one. Part two is that, yes, there are many different evangelical and Protestant churches and denominations. And at the outset, I must say that the Roman Catholic Church is an apostate church and that it's departed from the faith of the apostles. That being said, there are many Protestant churches that have also departed from the faith of the apostles 
and they too are apostate. Right. And so, yes, there are many different Protestant churches and denominations. Many of our mainline Protestant denominations have drifted into apostasy and are no longer following the faith of the apostles. So, yes, we do have a number of Protestant denominations and churches, but there's only one true church, and that's made up of all those who have been baptized by the Spirit into one body. And that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. The Church of Jesus Christ is the one true church. It's composed of all believers in the Lord Jesus. They have been born again of the Spirit of God. The true church has only one head, that is the one shepherd and the founder, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each member of Christ's church has his name written in heaven. Yes. Yes. We see that in Hebrews. Uh, every member of the Church of Jesus Christ has their name written in heaven. Well, the Roman Catholic Church cannot say that because they say that a Roman Catholic who has been baptized and thus justified according to their teaching can commit a mortal sin, die in that state, and end up in hell. So Roman Catholics do not have their names written in the Book of Life, and they're not assured of eternal life. And so when you look at the one true church of Jesus Christ, it is made up of people from every denomination, not to say that the Roman Catholic Church is a denomination. It is an apostate form of Christianity. However, there are born-again Christians in the Catholic Church, and the Spirit of God will eventually move them out as they are discipled in truth. And that's why the Great Commission is to go and make disciples, teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded. And one of the things that we read in John chapter 4, verse 24, is that God seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. So as you're discipling a born-again Christian in the Catholic Church, and you show them that God seeks worshipers in spirit and truth, they must come out right. and worship God in the truth that upholds, in a church that upholds the truth of Jesus Christ according to his scripture. Right, exactly right. Yeah, the Holy Spirit will deliver them out as they grow and progress in sanctification. Um, my, I, it's interesting because, and you can speak to this more well than can I, but uh, Roman Catholics believe, you mentioned the Pope and this Pope Francis, and I've kind of sometimes referred to him as the Joel Osteen of Roman Catholicism because he's so off the rails, um, even for Roman Catholic doctrine. But how does that work? Because according to Roman Catholic teaching, when the cardinals get together, and it's their responsibility to choose a new pope. That is a process that Roman Catholicism teaches is guided infallibly by the Holy Spirit. And once they make that decision, then they, you know, the white smoke comes out, right, of the of the little chimney there in their in their building. So, um, how is it that they've got a even by their standards a heretical pope when this was supposedly guided by the Holy Spirit? Well, I think you just um, really made the statement that needs to be addressed, and that is they're not guided by the Holy Spirit, they're guided by another spirit. Right. That shouldn't surprise us because the Apostle Paul warned us that someone come and preach another Jesus and another gospel and another spirit. And so in the Roman Catholic Church, you see that they are teaching another Jesus that needs to be offered on an altar even though he finished the work of redemption on the cross. And they have another gospel, which is made up of many additions to the pure gospel of grace. And in doing so, they're led by another spirit. And that spirit is the God of this world. And so it's clear that if the Holy Spirit had moved the bishops and the cardinals to elect this particular pope, then he would be a man of God. But clearly, this is a pawn of the devil. And I'm not saying that to be offensive to Roman Catholics. I mean, by the, own, by the Pope's own statements, we know that he is not guided by the Holy Spirit. He's a universalist. Yep. There is to say that everybody will be in heaven, including atheists, yep. as long as they're sincere in their unbelief. And so just by using any standard of measure, whether it be historic Roman Catholicism or the scriptures, we see that this Pope that is now the head of the Roman Catholic Church is in error in many different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, what about men like uh, Scott Hahn, who 
used to be Protestant. Um, was he Baptist? I can't even remember what, but he was Protestant. And um, then he went back to or went into the Roman Catholic Church as someone who supposedly had studied the scriptures and then he became convinced that Roman Catholicism was the true church, the true religion after all. And so, he, you know, this was not an uneducated man. I mean, um, he knew some stuff, knows some stuff, but he went into Roman Catholicism from Protestantism into this deception. So what what do we do with men like that? And, and out of curiosity, have you ever had any interaction with Scott? Yes, I have. He's got a very interesting history. He went to an evangelical seminary, and upon graduation, he became a pastor of a small Presbyterian church. Okay. And after several years, um, he actually said that praying to Mary was the last obstacle that um, he had to deal with when he was contrasting Roman Catholicism with biblical Christianity because he knew that biblical Christianity prays only to the Lord God. So as he was trying to get through this obstacle of praying to Mary, he actually started praying to Mary and he asked for a miracle. And according to Scott's own words, uh, that miracle actually took place. And so he was convinced then that it was efficacious in praying to Mary. So he left the Presbyterian church and he became a Roman Catholic. And so when you go into Roman Catholic bookstores today, you will see many, many books and tapes by Scott Hahn because he's the poster boy. Yeah. He's actually had a meeting with the Pope and he's, uh, I think, an example of that all Protestants need to leave their churches and come home to Holy Mother of the Church for the fullness of salvation. And yes, I have had interactions with Scott Hahn. In fact, I exposed him for the apostate that he is. And I actually talked to him on the phone and I published an article about him in one of my newsletters. And I did it to warn evangelicals and Protestants that this man was indeed an apostate, that he did something so unbiblical as to pray to someone other than God. And he says a miracle took place. And so he called me on the phone and he asked me why I would do that, why I would write an article on him calling him apostate. And I said, so that I could warn the sheep of our Lord Jesus Christ not to have any dealings with you because you're a false teacher and apostate. And I say that by the authority of God's word, yeah. because in God's word, it says those who depart from the faith of the apostles, which is what Scott Hahn did, they're apostate. And so I was just calling them what the word of God referred to in mass. Yeah. And that's a very poignant uh, illustration example of why we cannot base our theology off of what we experience. Absolutely. And you're so familiar with that in your ministry. Yeah. Feelings are subjective, but yeah. we can always go to the objective truth of God's word and test every spirit, test every man's teaching to find out if it's true. Right. Right. All right, Mike, moving along here, I'll just read this one verbatim. Uh, someone left this comment said, sacraments originated on Christ's command, baptism, Eucharist, penance, and confirmation. Christ commanded his church to absolve mortal and venial sin when he said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained, John 20, 21. So what would you say to this person who says that the Roman Catholic sacraments find their origin in the clear teaching of Christ and especially dealing with what Jesus said here about sins? Does that not reflect what we see in the Roman Catholic Church getting um, absolved of sins when you go to confession, you go to a priest and this kind of thing? Yeah, there's two parts to that question. And the first one is there's no such thing as venial sins. The Roman Catholic Church designates lesser sins as venial, and they don't cause spiritual death. They only cause temporal punishment and purgatory. And we know from the authority of God's word that all sins are mortal. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul that sins will surely die. Romans um, 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And so we know that all sins are mortal. They all cause eternal life or eternal death in the fires of hell. 
if those who are committing mortal sins die unforgiven. So there are only one classification of sins, those are mortal sins. Now, the second part of the question is, can Roman Catholics in their priesthood actually forgive sin? Well, we know very clearly from Scripture, in fact, in Luke chapter 5, verse 21, we know that only God can forgive sins. Now, what do we do with John chapter 20, verse 21, the verse that you read? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Well, by the authority of God's word, we can tell someone who has repented and believed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that their sins have been forgiven. We do that through the authority of God and his word. Now, in the same token, if a person rejects the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and refuses to repent, we can say by the authority of scripture that your sins are retained. And so it's not the person who is communicating with the sinner that is forgiving sins. They're simply communicating what the word of God teaches. God alone can forgive sins, but he tells us the only way they're to be forgiven, and that is by repenting and believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their sins were placed on Christ through faith, and he in turn gives his righteousness to those who put their faith in him. And so we do that through the authority of scripture, and Roman Catholic priests have no authority to forgive sins, and yet I can tell you that for 35 years, I would go and confess my sins to a priest, and he would tell me before they can be forgiven, I must do penance. And that was usually in the form of repetitious prayers. And I would leave the confessional booth, and I'd go up to the altar rail, and I would bow down and pray prayers to Mary and prayers to the Trinity. And at the end of those prayers, the priest said that he had the power to absolve my sins and that they were no longer unforgiven, that they were now absolved. And so we know from Scripture that that is not true. And so we must warn every Roman Catholic that might be listening to this that the only way to confess your sins is to confess them directly to God. We see that in Acts chapter 8 when the apostle Peter confronted Simon the sorcerer for trying to buy the gift of God with his money. Peter said, go directly to God and ask forgiveness and perhaps God will forgive you. And so here we have a, a classic example given to us in Acts chapter eight. Right, indeed, indeed. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about baptismal regeneration. My uh, Roman Catholics have a, a very different view than do we as Protestants regarding baptism. Uh, as Protestants, uh, you and I believe that baptism is an act of obedience after regeneration has taken place, after conversion, after we have been baptized into the body of Christ through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But Roman Catholics don't believe that. They believe in baptismal regeneration. And uh, this individual says that baptismal, baptismal regeneration was taught, accepted, pretty much universally accepted. Um, before the fourth century, in other words, before the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, and it was taught by the early church fathers. So what would you say to that? Yes, the early church fathers is something that every evangelical needs to be aware of. And what I usually share with Roman Catholics is, why would you build your theology on the uninspired words of the early church fathers when you can go directly to the inspired word of God, the scriptures. And so it really doesn't matter what century some of the churches in the fourth century were practicing baptismal regeneration. What really matters is what took place in the first century. Because in Jude chapter three, we are to contend earnestly for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so anything that comes after the first century that goes against the faith of the apostles needs to be rejected. And so if you study Roman Catholic Church history, you will see that they began drifting into apostasy around the fourth century. Some churches started practicing 
unbiblical methods of regeneration, such as water baptism. But it's clearly stated throughout Scripture that the only way a person can be regenerated is through the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, I think, is a great example of that. Uh, John described the work of the Spirit as that being the work of the wind or how a wind blows. You never know where it's coming or where it's going to. So is the work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God that brings forth life to those who are dead in their sins. And that's when Jesus spoke of you must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Later on in Peter's epistle, it says that we are born again through the imperishable seed of God's word. And so we see that spiritual life needs two elements in order to occur. You need the word of God and you need the spirit of God. And those two things together bring forth life to those who repent and believe the gospel. Just as there are two elements necessary in physical life, you need the sperm and the egg in order to produce physical life. Right. So it is in spiritual life. You need both the word of God and the spirit of God. And so baptismal regeneration through water is not only unbiblical, but it goes against the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very helpful. Very helpful. Um, and while I'm thinking about it, there's a, a book, I don't know if you've read it, entitled Long Before Luther by Dr. Nathan Busnitz. Yes. Excellent book. Yeah. Um, and, and that clears up, that also engages some of the Roman Catholic arguments. Oh, well, uh, you know, this whole idea of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, that was not taught. Nobody had ever heard that until Martin Luther and Dr. Nathan Busnitz in his, in his book uh, documents that that's, that's not the case. That is not true. Salvation by grace through faith, justification by grace through faith, that was, that was um, accepted well before Martin Luther came around. And if I could just add to what Roman Catholics teach about baptismal regeneration, yep. they teach that a seven-day-old infant, when the priest sprinkles water over the infant's head, that sacrament is not only the sacrament of regeneration such that the child becomes a child of God, but it's also the sacrament of justification. And so here again, we see the Roman Catholic Church going against the word of God because clearly justification is by faith and a baby has no capacity to believe anything. So they're wrong in two parts. Water baptism does not produce the new birth and it doesn't produce justification. Yes, indeed. Okay. All right. And uh, I'm going to summarize this one, Mike. And I think what I'm going to do to break this down to a few, to a few different parts, and I'm going to frame it in such a way that, okay, Protestants say this about Roman Catholics and Roman Catholics say, no, we don't believe that. And yet we maintain that they do. And so I'm going to get you to flesh these out for us a little bit. Uh, as Protestants, we would say uh, one of our chief uh, arguments against Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholics believe that they are saved by works. We, we assert that Roman Catholicism teaches a work salvation Roman Catholics say, oh, uh, uh, no, we don't. We don't teach that. What say you? Yeah, this really is a divide line between Protestant evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism. Because when you look at the doctrine of justification, first, I think it's important that we talk about what justification actually is. It declares the inflexible righteousness of God as the judge who must punish every sin that has ever been committed by every man and woman that's ever lived. And the only way a condemned sinner can be justified is through faith and the sin-bearing substitutionary atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what justification is. Jesus Christ satisfied divine justice for all those who would put their faith in him. Now, justification, according to the Bible, changes a person's legal status before God. But the Roman Catholic Church says, no, it does not change a person's legal status. It actually conforms them to the inner righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a change in the inner man. It's not a change in the legal status. 
In the Bible, we see that justification is instantaneous. You have this picture of a gavel coming down from heaven. And at that very moment, the judge in heaven declares the repentant sinner justified. And Roman Catholicism says, no, it's not instantaneous. It is a process. And then the Bible teaches that justification is by faith. Faith in what Christ has accomplished. But Rome says, no, it's through water baptism. And then we go a little bit further and we see that, according to the Bible, justification is permanent and it's never lost by sin. The legal status of a justified man is as unchangeable as the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we know that can never change. And the reason it's unchangeable is because the believer has been imputed or credited with the righteousness of Christ. By one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified, Hebrews 10, 14. But Rome, the Catholic Church, teaches justification is temporal. It can be lost by sin and regained through sacraments, penance, and good works. And so according to the Council of Trent, which was the Counter-Reformation, after the Reformation, the, the bishops of the Catholic Church got together, and they actually issued an anathema. If anyone says that you are justified by faith alone, you are anathema. And so the reason being is the Catholic Church teaches, and still to this day, that you're justified by faith plus works. And so clearly, according to the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church teaches salvation by works. Now, I think it's important to talk about works in the Christian life. We come to the cross with empty hands of faith. The only thing we bring to the cross is our sin. Once we are saved by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, then Ephesians 2.10 tells us we do the works that God has prepared for us to walk in. Yes. Our motivation is not to gain eternal life. We already have it. It's been received as a gift. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches just the opposite. The motivation for good works is to obtain justification. You have to do good works in order to be re-justified. And so you can see this great divide between the true church of Jesus Christ who preaches justification by faith alone and Christ alone by his grace alone and the Roman Catholic Church who teaches justification must be by works. And so I think it's also important to note that justification is permanent. For a Christian, when you have been justified, you're justified forever. Right. In Roman Catholicism, if you commit a mortal sin, you're de-justified. You're now destined for hell again. And the only way to be re-justified is to do good works, receive the sacraments, and then work your way back to heaven through merit. And so this is the most important part. Martin Luther said justification is the very hinge upon which the gates of heaven open and close. If you get justification wrong, you get the gospel wrong. And the Roman Catholic Church has a different view of justification yep. that leads to a false and fatal gospel. Yeah. It's like what we were talking about in our first interview. They use some of the same terminology, but they have very different definitions. Very different definitions of grace, of justification, of faith. So, and Mike, um, those anathemas that were adopted at the Council of Trent uh, that concluded, started in 1545, concluded in 1563, those anathemas remain to this day official Roman Catholic doctrine, correct? Yes, they do. In fact, when a group of bishops get, get together at a council and they speak with one unified voice, that voice is said to be infallible. And so if you were to change one anathema, then you would be destroying the whole Roman Catholic system because they're all based on infallible teachings. Right. And so their teachings are in cement forever. They can never change. And so oftentimes I'll talk to Roman Catholics and they'll say, oh, we don't believe in purgatory anymore. Well, yes, you do. It's an infallible dogma pronounced yeah. and it can never change. And they may not um, overtly talk about it, but anytime you go to a Catholic mass, you will pick up the bulletin 
and you will see the masses being offered to get these particular souls out of purgatory, and they'll list the names of those who are still in purgatory. So they still teach it. It's an infallible dogma. Yeah, right. All right, so next, uh, and this was a comment that I made in our first interview as well. Uh, I said that, uh, to paraphrase myself, really all you need to know about the Roman Catholic Church in a sense is that its entire history is one of it doing its dead level best to keep the word of God out of the hands of everyday people. And uh, there was some pushback against that. Uh, you know, as Protestants, we say Roman Catholicism doesn't encourage you to read the Bible for yourself. Uh, in fact, their history is they, they've wanted to keep the Bible away from you. And Catholics say, no, 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 that's not true. What say you? Well, there was two councils that prohibited the use of the Bible, and the first one was in thir the 13th century, and then we also see at the Council of Trent that the Council of Trent prohibited people from having the Bible in their own possession. They went so far as to tell a Catholic, if you had a Bible in your possession, you could not have your sins forgiven until you return the Bible to the Catholic Church. Hmm. Now, why would a church that lifts up the name of Christ forbid the word of Christ being in the hands of the people? Well, the simple answer to that is the truth was setting captives free. Right, right. You may remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.24, that we are to pray for those in opposition to the gospel, that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth so they can escape the snare of the devil that holds them captive to do his will. And so the only way anyone can be released from the Satan's grasp and captivity is by the truth of God's word. And we see the Lord Jesus saying that in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, if you're a true disciple of mine, you will abide in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, free from religious deception, free from the bondage of false religion, free from the power of sin. So the Catholic Church recognized that those who had the Bible were reading it, and they were being set free from the Roman Catholic system, yeah. and so they wanted to take away the truth from the people so that they could maintain control over their people and all of their religious indoctrination. Yeah, indeed, indeed. You know, Mike, uh, eight or nine years ago now, maybe close to 10 years ago, I was preaching in Ecuador, and the, the man I was with, a man named Will Pounds, took me um, one day up for a drive up into the mountains in Ecuador, and he wanted to show me this village. And when we got there, he's, he, he warned me, he said, Justin, this is old school Roman Catholicism. He said, then there was a market up there he wanted me to see, but he said, if you were to get out right now, get out of the car and start sharing the gospel here in this village, he said, they would stone you. And he said, I, I don't mean that metaphorically he said they would literally stone you if you if you started to share the gospel in this village and had i been single and not married i might have been tempted to do it but uh that i was married but it it was it was stunning to me that uh, even to this day there are roman catholics out there not all of them but that there are roman catholics to this day that will are willing to put you to death for preaching the gospel when we look at the history of the Roman Catholic Church, they have a history of putting people to death that preach the gospel faithfully and clearly. And um, anyone can pick up uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs and you can see how you know, the Roman Catholic Church has always been an enemy of the gospel. And it even goes back 2,000 years. I mean, who, who are the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ? It was the apostate Jewish leaders. And so religion has always been an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, Mike, next one. Um, we as Protestants say to Catholics, Catholics, you put tradition over Scripture, or you elevate tradition at least to the same authoritative level as Scripture, if not over Scripture. Catholics say, no, we don't. Take it away. Sure. Well, the Catechism of the Catholic Church clearly states that Roman Catholics have three authorities and they dare to say that all three are equal. 
And the three authorities would be the Word of God, which is the Bible, along with sacred tradition, and then the infallible teachings of the Pope. Now, they say they're all equal, but in actual practice, it is the magisterium of the church, which is made up of all the bishops of the church. They actually sit above scripture and tradition. And the Catholic Church will deny this, but it's the bishops who actually twist and distort scripture so that it conforms to the ungodly traditions in the Roman Catholic religion. And so the Apostle Peter probably not knowing what lay ahead, he said that those who pervert the word of God, they do it to their own destruction. And that's what Catholic bishops do. They distort the word of God so that it tries to harmonize with the traditions of the Catholic church. And so in actual practice, you've got the magisterium sitting above scripture and tradition, twisting and distorting the scripture so it conforms with their tradition. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Mike, why do why does the Roman Catholic Church not allow priests to be married? You've already read 1 Timothy 4.1. Uh, some will fall away from the faith uh, and pay heed to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons. Uh, why does the Roman Catholic Church not allow priests to be married when um, scripture says that one of those doctrines of demons is forbidding marriage. What's going on there? Well, follow the money. Uh, if you look at church history, the priests were becoming very wealthy. And so when they would die, the wealth that they obtained would go to their wife. And so the Catholic Church put an end to that, and they actually forbid priests to marry. And so it is a doctrine of the devil, as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1. And so that is uh, ultimately, again, if you study the history of the Catholic Church, you will see that this huge amount of wealth had come into the Catholic Church. And a lot of it had to do with selling God's forgiveness through indulgences. And so many of the priests and bishops and cardinals became very wealthy we know that a lot of the money went to build the Basilica at St. Peter's. And so the church put an end to that now. And my uncle was a Roman Catholic priest. And so um, I know firsthand, uh, even though my uncle didn't have a lot of money, he spent 30 years in the jungles of Burma converting the Burmese to Roman Catholicism. But he did acknowledge that uh, they were forbidden to marry. And he wouldn't admit that that was the reason. But Again, all you can do is look at church history and see. Yeah, yeah. And Mike, this this may be uh, one of the more controversial things that we'll talk about, but uh, I want to get your take on this. Uh, a few years ago, there was big headlines when all of the sexual abuse scandal, you know, the uh, priests, a lot of priests, a lot of bishops, a lot of uh, um people even in some of the upper echelons of the Roman Catholic Church discovered had been abusing children for decades. I mean, thousands of of cases. Um, In fact, anecdotally, my wife, Kathy, she was raised a Roman as a Roman Catholic and she went to a Roman Catholic school and she said, everybody knew what the priests were doing. She said it was like this open secret. Um, And she said that one of the priests that was, around her when she was growing up is that and this is not a joke it's gonna sound like this is a made-up name it really was his name his name was father heretic wow go figure i mean that was his name father heretic but anyway um he would she said he would take little girls and hold them grab them by their legs and hold them up so that their dress would fall down and hold them up off the ground and, and just look at these little girls and she said stuff like that went on all the time. Um, it's it's my opinion, educated opinion, I think, that, okay, so Roman Catholic, the, the forbidding of marriage, they forbid their priests to be married. So I would say that the Roman Catholic Church, in a sense, has become a factory for homosexuals and or pedophiles because up until up until six years ago, 2015, um, 
homosexuals could not legally marry in the United States. So you've got all these homosexual men out there, some of whom raised Catholic, and they know that legally, again, up until 2015, they know legally they can't get married. And so, hey, grew up in a Roman Catholic church. I'm homosexual. I'm not attracted to women. I know I can't get married. So how about I become a priest? And they become priests. And as priests, they are in close contact with and are around children, whether in a Catholic school or in a Roman Catholic church, choir boys, that kind of thing. And you see, not that it doesn't happen in other denominations, it does, but it seems particularly rampant in the Roman Catholic church. And it seems to me that the combination of up until recently, homosexuals not being able to marry, and you combine that with the Roman Catholic teaching of forbidding marriage for priests, it seems like you've just you've created a right environment to have a lot, a very high percentage of your priests being homosexuals. Is that am I pretty close to home here? Yes, you are. And there's been some former priests that have um, come out of the Catholic Church and have written books on this very topic. And it is um, um, a way that they can hide their sin under the cloak of a collar and a cassock. And you're right, they are in close proximity to young altar boys and altar girls now. And it really breaks my heart that parents cannot protect their children better because based on the big scandal that has erupted in the Roman Catholic Church and many priests now have been brought to justice, it really amazes me how parents can continue to let their children be in the presence of Roman Catholic priests. And there was a time when this uh, sexual scandal broke out and all the bishops gathered in Dallas, Texas at the Fairmont Hotel. And so I went down there to talk to the bishops so that I could be a witness to them and share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with them. And I remember it was a hot August day. And as I was talking to different bishops, there was also many of the parents there that had lost their children to Roman Catholic priests and, and their homosexuality. And one particular woman, I'll never forget, her son was abused as an altar boy. And Several months later, he committed suicide. And I tried to witness to her about the Lord Jesus Christ being the high priest who would never abuse anyone and that she needs to put her trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in the Roman Catholic priesthood. And she, we talked for 15 or 20 minutes and she really thanked me for having a compassionate heart and, and speaking to her in love. But she said, I was born a Catholic, and I'm going to die a Catholic. Hmm. Just grieved me to no end that here a woman lost her only son Gosh. the abuse of a priesthood, and yet the indoctrination was so powerful that she couldn't see that this was an evil institution that was um, leading people down the wide road to destruction rather than to the narrow road that is only entered through Jesus Christ. And so it really hurt me, uh, it affected me greatly. And again, as you said, this is not reserved only for the Roman Catholic Church. Evangelical and Protestant churches have similar problems, but not to the degree that the Roman Catholic yeah. Church does. Yeah, not to the degree. Because with Protestant churches, you know, there is a God-ordained um, avenue of, um, for that human desire and need for uh, love and intimacy is called marriage. Um, but Roman Catholic doesn't afford that. And so you've got these unregenerate men, you know, as, as Catholics, they're not regenerate. So you've got unregenerate men that have no outlet for their desire for physical intimacy. And you put them in close contact with a bunch of kids or other priests, you know, and so it's just like a, a factory for homosexuals and, and pedophiles. Do you have any idea, like, what percentage of 
Roman Catholic priests would be homosexual? Well, again, based on a couple of books that former priests have written, they say it's upwards of 50%. So that's one out of two priests that are homosexuals. And I mean, it's, it's really um, one of the priests in his book called Notre Dame Seminary, Notre Flame, because it's where homosexuals would go to become priests so that they could hide their sin under a collar or a cloak. But it's really interesting, something you just said, God ordained marriage, but he never ordained the Roman Catholic priesthood. In fact, it was the Lord Jesus that put an end to the sacerdotal priesthood. When he died on the cross, the veil separating the Holy of Holies from sinful man was torn open from top to bottom, showing that now we have direct access to God through the once for all sacrifice of the perfect high priest, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, Mike, let's uh, move into another arena here a little bit. Okay. So this is one of the arenas where Roman Catholicism and word of faith, charismatic movement, a lot of overlap, other areas too, but um, they both have an emphasis on signs and wonders. For charismatics, it's Todd White going around lengthening people's legs, you know, all that kind of nonsense, gold dust and, uh, feathers falling out of the sky, that kind of, that kind of nonsense. But for Roman Catholics, it's weeping statues. It's, uh, finding the image of Mary burned in your toast. Um, and now some of these, some of these things seem to have a little bit, I hate to say more credibility, but there's a little bit of evidence for them in a sense, uh, in doing some research for our interview here, I came across a video and it's really creepy. I've sent it to you and you've seen it. So in, in 1998, I believe, there was a, an American tourist that went to a Roman Catholic church in Venezuela. And they have the host in the, what they call the tabernacle. It was there mounted in their wall. And, um, and he was, for some reason, <laughs> I find curious, he had his video camera rolling, conveniently. And, uh, and the host turns red, bleeds, and apparently starts to pulsate and beats like a heart would beat. And it did this for about 30 seconds. And then it just went back to normal. And uh, this is a Eucharistic miracle proof of transubstantiation. So what do you make? What do we do with stuff like this? Well, it goes back throughout the history of the Roman Catholic Church, claims about supernatural phenomena, including weeping statues and bleeding Eucharist, have been historically common in the Roman Catholic system. And again, I'm not saying this to be offensive to Roman Catholics, but when you recognize that the spirit that is leading the Roman Catholic Church is Satan, then you recognize that Satan according to scripture, has the power to do lying signs and wonders. Right. Exactly. In fact, Lord Jesus said that, that would be predominant in the end times, lying signs and wonders to deceive even the elect, if that were possible, Matthew 24, 24. So then it's no surprise then that a lot of these phenomena that we're seeing, weeping statues and bleeding Eucharist, are supernatural miracles. And so they're all... Um, put in place by demonic spirits and are carried out according to their purpose of leading people away from their pure and simple devotion to our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at the weeping statues of Mary and the bleeding Eucharist, I actually did a quote from uh, an article that I was reading. It said, by the recommendation of the Holy See, a suitable place was set up for this bleeding Eucharist so that the faithful could venerate it. The reigning bishop said, I hope that this will serve to deepen the cult of the Eucharist and will have a deep impact on the lives of people facing the relic. And so again, we're seeing that this is purposeful. Rather than looking to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work of redemption, the priest is wanting them to look to a bleeding Eucharist, taking their attention away from the finished work of Christ and looking to the Eucharist instead. Yeah, yeah. And and some of these supposed miracles have been proven to be false. I've done a little bit of research. I've seen some, some of the weeping statues. It's been proven to be false. 
um, intentional deception. They, they figured out how they did it. But um, yeah, you, you rightly said there will be lying signs and wonders. Um, and, and we see this going all the way back even to the Old Testament, right? Exodus, Moses at the uh, in the Egyptian court, um, the Egyptian magicians up to a point could could reproduce the same signs that Moses and Aaron were performing. Yeah, Justin, I had actual personal firsthand experience of a lying sign and wonder. As I mentioned, my uncle was a Roman Catholic priest, and we were living in Italy at the time. My, my dad was an army colonel. And so when my uncle came on furlough from Burma, we drove across the boot of Italy to San Giovanni Rotundo, which is where Padre Pio was living. And he was a Roman Catholic priest who was a stigmatist. In other words, he had the wounds of Christ in his palms. And so I actually served as an altar boy during the mass that Padre Pio gave. And I was there very close to him in the sacristy, and his his hands were wrapped in gauze. But this was, again, supernatural. Um, They said the doctors looked at it and they had no explanation whether that's true or not. I don't know, but I remember as a young Catholic, around 11 or 12 years old, I thought, wow, this is proof that the Roman Catholic Church is the true church, because here you have a priest wearing the wounds of Christ. Well, later on, when I became a Christian, I actually read his autobiography. And in that book, it said that Padre Pio would sit by his windowsill and souls leaving the fires of purgatory would stop by on their way to heaven thanking Padre Pio for suffering on their behalf to get them out of a place called purgatory. Well, that was clear that this man was of the evil spirits, that he wasn't a true child of God, but he was a deceiver, just like the one that probably put the wounds on his palms. That's about as blasphemous as you can get right there. Really, it denies the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ and there is to say that a mere man was suffering so that people could be removed from their sin and welcomed into heaven. Yeah. And that, that dogs my mind a little bit too about relics, because that's that's a, a big thing with the Roman Catholic Church. They've got relics. I think somewhere they've got one of the finger bones of the Apostle John or something like that. And they've got, you know, pieces of wood from the cross. And I've heard it said that if you gathered all of these pieces of wood that came from the cross, you could build a three-story house. (laughs) Or even Noah's Ark. Or Noah's Ark. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you might remember the day before Martin Luther put up his 95 Thesis on the church door in Wittenberg, he purposely did it on October 31st because the next day, Roman Catholics were going in to venerate over 1,900 relics. Yeah. So they were said to be given a plenary indulgence if they would confess their sins and venerate these relics. There's a place in a church in Pittsburgh that has thousands of relics, and many of them are bone fragments or fingernails, pieces of the cross and whatever that Catholics go to venerate. Oh, by the way. This is gross. (laughs) Roman Catholic priests will always, during the sacrifice of the Mass, bend over and kiss the altar. A lot of people don't realize what the priest is doing. Each altar has to have embedded a relic. And so what the priest is doing is he's bending over and kissing the relic, which is necromancy. You know, it's idolizing the dead. Yeah, that's condemned in scripture. It really is, yes. I did I didn't know that. That's new information for me. So every altar in every Roman Catholic church has a relic of some sort. That's correct. And that's what the priest is doing when he kisses the altar. He's kissing the relic. Huh. Does, I guess the priest knows what relic it is in his particular altar? Yes. Okay. So it would be, I mean, you would run out of, even if we had the complete skeletons of all 12 apostles, we, that you'd run out of those pretty fast because, I mean, there's, I don't know how many tens of thousands of Roman Catholic churches there are in the world. So what, bones of of some saints, like what, St. Joseph, St. whoever. Well, even Padre Pio, even Padre Pope Pio. Paul II. Yeah, so the Catholic Church is always creating more and more saints, so they have more and more relics. Okay. 
All right. And there's a parallel, right, between the Roman Catholic view of saints to whom you can pray. So if you become a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, you can pray to that person, which is going to lead us to Mary here in just a second. But um, there's a parallel between the Roman Catholic system of saints and the Roman pagan Roman, the pagan Roman gods, they're, they're Parthenon of, of, of pagan gods, right? That they would, they would pray to. There's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, it's really interesting because John Paul II, who was a pope for over 20 years, when he died, people were praying for him. But later on, when he was elevated to priesthood, then they started praying to him because uh, yeah. you can pray to saints. Yeah. As mediators, as mediators between God and man. Yeah, right. One mediator. Okay, uh, so that leads us to, I guess, the person who would be at the uh, top of the pyramid of their their saints would be Mary. Um, as Protestants, we say, Catholics, you worship Mary. And Catholics say, no, we don't. We do not worship Mary. We revere Mary, but we don't worship Mary. You know, you misrepresent what we believe about Mary. Talk to us about Mary. Well, first we have to explain what Catholics say they do. They venerate Mary. Now, if you look up venerate in Webster's Dictionary, it says to worship. But the Roman Catholic Church says that they worship only God. They only venerate Mary and the saints. And so it's really just a play on words. It is worship. In fact, in my last newsletter, I showed a picture of um, the current Pope uh, before a statue of Mary, and he is very Marian in his theology. He really believes that Mary is a sinless mediator that Catholics can go through in order to receive the gift of salvation. In fact, that's what the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches, that Mary is the cause of salvation, and she continues to bring us the gifts of salvation. In a lot of ways, they give her divine attributes. They won't go so far as to say she's the fourth person of the Trinity, but everything Christ is, they give a common title to Mary. They believe that Mary is the mother of God. And yeah. of course, that's an impossibility because for Mary to be the mother of God, she would have had to pre-exist the eternal God who had no beginning. Now, Mary was the mother of Jesus Christ. And she was um, the mother of the Lord Jesus, and Jesus was both fully God and fully man. But it was the human nature that Mary um, gave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so she's not the mother of God. But um, I think Roman Catholics need to recognize that according to their catechism, the teachings on Mary go directly against the Word of God. And I just mentioned several of them, but the Catholic Church teaches that Mary is an advocate, that she is a sinless mediator. And the Bible clearly says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Catholic Church teaches that Mary was immaculately conceived. In other words, she was conceived without original sin, yeah. And then she went on to live a sinless life. Right. So some Catholics who saw in the Bible that sin is what causes death and the body to decay, they said, well, if Mary never sinned, where's her body? She must still be alive. And so in 1950, the Catholic Church pronounced that Mary's body was assumed into heaven. And that's why her body is no longer on the earth. And so one lie led to another lie. And Unfortunately, Catholics can't see that, but they continue to venerate Mary as the person that she never was. And one of the things that we did in my last newsletter, which was an article on Mary, there was a lady in Australia that actually came to Saving Faith through our ministry and reading my book, Preparing for Eternity. And she had gone to Fatima three different times to get messages from Mary and to venerate Mary. She was very much devoted to Mary, but once she was born again, she recognized that she had been committing a sin in her worship and veneration of Mary. And so she started looking for a book about the truth of Mary. 
and there was no book that she could find. And so she prayed to God and God encouraged her through the prompting of the Holy Spirit to write a book. And so now we have that published on our website, The Real Truth About Mary. And it's a very short book because as you know, Justin, there's very little mentioned in the Bible about Mary, the mother of Jesus. Right. And so I encourage anybody that would like to pursue that to visit our website and take a look at our last newsletter. Right. I don't want people to miss that. Uh, talk about how Catholics believe, but this is apparently a doctrine that just came about in 1950. So 70 years ago, uh, they come up with this doctrine that Mary never died. She ascended into heaven, just like Jesus. Right. That's blasphemy. Well, it really is. I mean, to call her sinless and a mediator going directly against scripture, all have sinned yeah. and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say all have sinned except Mary. Right. But all have sinned. And Mary even referred to Jesus as her savior. Yes. So if, if she was without sin, she would have no need for a savior. That's right. So, I mean, you know, Catholics, if you're watching, if you really want to be, you know, accurate about Mary, she admitted she needed a savior. So Roman Catholics have a different Mary than the Mary of the Bible. They have a different authority, a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. They have a different view of sin, and ultimately that leads them to a different path to eternity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's our, our real ministry, is our love for Catholics, our compassion for them. We don't want Catholics to believe what you and I have said during this video. We want them to believe the Word of God. Yeah. Test everything that you've heard with the, the authority of God's word. There is no higher authority than Almighty God, and he's revealed himself through his infallible and error-inspired word. If you want to know the truth, look to the Lord Jesus. He said, I am the truth. He yeah. said, I came to testify to the truth. And he said, everybody on the side of truth listens to me. So if you're really searching for the truth, go no further than Christ and his word. Amen. Amen, Mike. Well, Mike, as we conclude, do you have, have anything you would like to, uh, any departing thoughts, concluding thoughts, um, and, and that along with where can people find, get in touch with you and find out more information about your ministry, your resources to Catholics and other evangelistic resources that you have? Well, sure. I would like uh, all of your listeners to recognize that the Roman Catholic religion is not a Christian denomination, but it is a huge mission field made up of 1.3 billion precious souls that need to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus talked about two roads to eternity. One is a narrow road that leads to life, and it's only through Jesus Christ, and it's only by grace through faith and his righteousness the other road is a wide road that leads to destruction. It's a road made up of those who believe they can gain heaven through their own good works and merit. And it's a road based on their own achievements and their own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ. And in the end, they will stand before the Lord Jesus and they'll hear the most terrifying words anyone could ever hear when he says, depart from me, I never knew you and they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. So I would encourage all of your evangelicals that are listening to make the most of every opportunity to witness to the Roman Catholics. Talk about the authority that we know is the word of God. Talk about the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ and talk about the gospel, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone. It's all for the glory of God alone. Ask questions, find out where they are, find out what they're trusting, and then point them to the narrow road that leads to life. And Justin, I just want to thank you for the opportunity. People that want to have more information can visit our website, proclaimingthegospel.org. It's got a lot of different articles. It's got all of our archived newsletters. We've got seven different gospel tracks 
that are dedicated to reaching people lost in religion. And these are gospel tracts that are biblically accurate. And we have to be careful with the gospel tracts that we use. Some of them are not worth passing along. And so I've written a book called Preparing for Eternity. And it's a book that has set so many Roman Catholics free. And what it does is it forces Roman Catholics to make a decision. Should I trust Christ and his word or the teachings and traditions of my religion? I put the book together such that it's impossible for a Catholic to believe both. They must make a decision and hopefully choose Christ and his word. Amen. Amen, Mike. Mike, thank you so very much, brother. And uh, uh, this has been very helpful. Uh, uh, by God's grace, I hope it will reach a lot of, of our Roman Catholic friends, people for whom we have a great deal of concern and care and love. Uh, we hate the deception that they are in, but we love them, and we want to see them come out of that, the same deception that God saved you out of. So uh, thank you, Mike. And Mike, too, you speak, right? You, you write, but you, you travel and you speak like I do. The Lord's taken us all over the world, and uh, it's really been amazing to see what he has accomplished through a couple of broken vessels that my wife and I, she travels with me, and we go into churches and seminaries and conferences throughout the world. So if you have a church and you would like me to come in and equip and evangelize, you know, we, we take people out after we equip them. We'll take them out to Roman Catholic churches and give them practical evangelism while we're there and help them be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. So invite us in. We'd be glad to equip you and encourage you to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Proclaimingthegospel.org, dear friends. I encourage you to go and visit his website if you've not done so already. Mike, thank you, brother. And um, may God bless you and Jane. We appreciate your friendship. Thank you, Justin. I feel the same way. All right. Okay, dear ones, I hope that this has been helpful for you. And um, thank you very much for watching. Share it with your Roman Catholic friends, family members. And um, I think you can see that both Mike's heart and mine is not one of um, vindictiveness. We genuinely have a compassion and care for folks and want them to know that the Jesus of the Bible who saves infallibly by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, in the fellowship of His Holy Spirit. Be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.